Good afternoon and welcome to UCL's lunch hour lectures. I'm Paola Lettieri, Professor of Chemical Engineering at UCL and Director of UCList, our new campus at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Today's lecture is part of a series to give you a taster of the academic activities that UCList will encompass. It is a privilege to have with us today Kate Jones, Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity at UCL. In her talk, she will explore the links and interdependencies between our health and the health of our planet, with particular reference to understanding how rapid global environmental changes can impact the development and spread of infectious diseases such as COVID-19, Ebola or SARS. Kate will be talking about this very topic later today, in front of the Environmental Audit Committee, she will be giving evidence on the links between COVID-19 and the environment. She is a honorary fellow at the Zoological Society of London. She has held also appointments at the University of Cambridge, Columbia University and Imperial College London. And she is the director of the Nature Smart Research Centre that will be opening in 2022 at the new UCLS campus at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Before I hand over to Kate, I would like to remind you to post your questions on Slido, and they will be answered after the presentation. Kate, over to you now. Thanks very much for that introduction, Paola, and it's a pleasure to be here. So, as Paola said, I am really interested in the intersection of uh, human health and how that interlinks with ecological health, the health of our environment, with a particular focus on infectious diseases. Um, so if I'm just going to share, try and share my screen, I look at the intersection between ecosystem health and human health. The links between public health and the environment are um, underdeveloped, I would say. I think the public health community has uh, traditionally focused a lot on human health without respect to the environment. And that changed about five, five or six years ago, where the public health community got really interested in the impacts of climate change. And it's become more apparent how uh, big an impact that will be on human health. So um, it started off a conversation about, you know, how human health is linked to the environment in a much bigger way. And I've just put this um, infographic up here from Ed Hawkins and, that, and his Twitter handle is down here. Uh, so you can have a look at his amazing stuff. Um, so he's just been showing, you know, the global temperature changes over the last um, few hundred years. And this kind of got the attention of, um, of the medical community. And they came out with a Atlantic Countdown, which is a, re a real landmark paper um, on health and climate change and, and trying to link those two together. So, so that was brilliant. And um, as ecologists, I'm an ecologist, I've been talking about the links between uh, human health and ecosystem health for a long time. But it was really interesting to see how the public health community kind of woke up to this fact on, uh, with, through the lens of, of climate change. And that's brilliant. But there's also a danger here that the more nuanced understanding of, of not just climate change, but how we're changing ecological systems in general is kind of lost in, in this, uh, this kind of focus on climate change. And so I'm going to show you this slide, which is, um, you know, just kind of a summary of some of the of of the approaches that ecologists take when we think about the links between ecological health and human health. So if you can see the kind of um, uh, 
uh, green box here that's uh, all biodiversity, everything, all land, air, and living, all living things. And then they're kind of packaged up. They're interacting with each other, all these species and humans and landscapes. They're, they're kind of interacting in these, these uh, ecosystems. And they're providing some kind of service to us. So this is a pretty human-focused view of the world. But they're providing some kind of service to us. So it could be, uh, say, pollination from, from insects. And they're providing some goods for us. For, so it could be crops. And that would help our human health our well-being, economic value, health value, or some kind of shared societal or cultural value. So any impact that uh, that, that, that is on the system in terms of um, changing demographics of humans or changing the ecosystems or management practices or pollution, for example, will impact these ecosystems in ways which we, you know, we can't quite predict. And then these ecosystem services will be uh, impacted in different ways so it could be a uh, pest, pesticide on on crops or herbicide on crops which, which and pesticide that could um, impact the services which which bees provide to us in terms of pollination for example and that that then impacts the goods that we that we are produced so in the kind of circle at the bottom here um, I've kind of we've kind of put the kind of ecosystem services which we have been thinking about are, are really important. So, and the, the links between these are need more work, but um, we're, we're pretty sure of some of these things about how, how biodiversity impacts the kind of provisioning, regulating, supporting, and cultural services that uh, are provided to humans. But those kind of direct links between human health and, um, and ecosystem health are rarely made. So these are kind of indirect links um, that are mentioned here and and this kind of understanding of ecosystems and how important they are is um, gradually percolating through the policy environment as well so that's from the international level to the national level to the really local level so if I if I start with the sustainable development goals these are kind of international targets that we've all agreed to and 14 and 15 focus on the environment you know, as well as cities and grow, um, and no poverty and, and hunger. So they're recognised as, as really important parts of the answer to how we develop as a, as a planet in a sustainable way. Also, um, like the International Panel on Climate Change, you also now have an International Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, which is an international community effort to uh, understand what will happen to biodiversity over the next uh, century and the impacts on ecosystem services provided and then also um, that's part of the, the, the thinking behind this is part of uh, the 25-year environment plan from DEFRA for the for UK government and that's also reflected down into the London environment strategy at the at a local level of city level for example London and then um, you know we've been um, people have been working on understanding what those the, the kind of financial rewards are of of keeping ecosystems intact and this is a really interesting um, study in 2017 that looked at how much the green space in London actually saved us in terms of avoided health costs which is incredibly interesting. So as I said this is percolating in the policy community but the direct links, actual direct links between human health and ecosystem health are, are not well 
understood or not well modelled. And so uh, one exception to this is in zoonotic diseases, in diseases that we get from animals. And there's a, a really uh, there's a really increasing interest in, in, in zoonotic infectious diseases um, over the last few years because they're increasing in frequency. But also uh, one, of the, um, uh, one of the ideas really is that the ecosystem degradation impacts these transmission pathways between zoonotic diseases, uh, these diseases from animals into people. So two-thirds, it's important because two-thirds of all infectious diseases in humans have an animal origin or are transmitted by animals. So I've just got an example here of the kind of pathways between animals and people. So you have, uh, they can be airborne, they can be through vectors, they could be from um, fecal, uh, fecal or, or urine uh, contaminated food, for example. Um, or direct contacts, like bites from an infected animal or from vectors. So there are lots and lots of lots of different pathways, but we think that um, you know that they are increasing. But also, there's a really strong link to if you change the environment that these animals are in, if you degrade ecosystems, you're changing those transmission pathways between animals and people, and making transmission more likely. Uh, so. Uh, it's important because we also think that this is what's caused the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we think it's a zoonotic disease, has a zoonotic origin, animal origin. We're not completely sure what that animal is, but um, they, we have been finding that the genetic sequence that's in humans, that spilled over into humans in, um, in, in 2019, is 96% similar to the one found in rhinolophus bats in China. Now, we're, we're really not sure of what the, the links are at the moment, um, and there could be other animals involved, but um, bats host a diversity of coronaviruses. Coronaviruses is, is the family that COVID-19 is in. And they, they seem to have evolved with them for, for many, uh, for millennia. So we think that coronaviruses are, are um, ancestral to bats, but we don't quite understand what those transmission pathways are and how it got from a bat into a human. But it, it's an incredibly important area. And as you know, that's uh, so why I'm doing a lunch hour lecture from my kitchen, is it's had a really severe impact on our society and financial security and our global health. So somatic diseases are incredibly important to understand. And I've been trying to understand how exactly does ecosystem degradation in influence and change the um, likelihood of a zoonotic disease emergence? And also, can you then use that to make a predictive model of what's going to happen next? Because that's the million dollar question, multi-billion dollar question is, is it going to happen again? And where is that? And how can we stop it? Okay, so um, just to kind of explain a little bit about some of those pathways, you've got um, human infectious diseases here, emerging infectious diseases in the blue, wildlife ones in the yellow, and domestic animal ones in the uh, in the pink. And there's, you know, um, pathogens can come from wildlife or domestic species or vectors into into humans and, and it's thought like things like global travel 
can um, emphasize and uh, make a spillover from an animal much more serious because we're, humans are, are traveling, we're concentrating our um, populations in urban areas, so the high densities. Uh, also, um, if you kind of encroach into um, pristine habitats, you might encounter wildlife. If you're uh, intensifying agriculture, and then that intensification is 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 near uh, wild areas. You may get spillovers from wildlife into domestic species, and domestic species can act as these intermediary intermediaries or um, amplifying hosts, so that you can get um, spillovers from wildlife into humans that way. So that was the case of, of Nipah virus in 1999, which spilled over from wildlife into domestic uh, domestic a farm of pigs and then it went into the, the farmers, the human farmers. Okay, so uh, from that kind of rather woolly Venn diagram, we've been trying to conceptualize and model how this, um, how, how this could be um, mathematically modeled to make a more predictive framework. So these spillovers are, are very rare, but very serious. And so it's very difficult to model them because you don't have very many previous cases so that we have to kind of develop these models from first principles. So this is a, a kind of conceptual framework we published um, uh, late last year on how possibly we could go about doing this. So we have the kind of yellow bit here is all of the physical environment. And then you've got a partition of that, like subset of that is where the hosts are. So these animals which, which spread these diseases. And then a subset of that, because not all of the animals do have these pathogens, is, is where the pathogen lives within inside the host. So we need to understand you know, where in the physical environment the host species live and then what makes a host more um, what makes a species more hosty? You know, why, why would a pathogen be in that host? Are they immunocompromised or are they, um, you know, pregnant or feeding young or water stressed? Or what, what is it about the host that makes them have more pathogens and then, then shed those pathogens out into the environment? And then really importantly, you've got these human populations in the white here. So you've got susceptible humans, you've got migration into human populations, and movement out of those populations. And then you've got this really important part here, which is pathogen spillover. So it's it's from the infected hosts into the infected or susceptible human populations. And then that's gonna be you know, influenced by human factors, not just um, the stuff about the pathogen, but it's gonna be about you know, how much healthcare and immunity is in that, that human population. Um, how much um, access to um, medical facilities they have. It's going to be about what's the contact rates between um, humans and animals. So what is it's, it's trying to figure out, you know, can we kind of estimate all of these boxes and understand uh, their kind of um, uh, into a kind of predictive framework so that we can predict the next spillover. And then importantly, all of these things then change with, uh, you know, ecosystem degradation or governance, stability of the human population, uh, corruption, healthcare, infrastructure. So all of these things are changed on all of these boxes. Um, so it's a, so it has to be a kind of systems dynamic framework. So we have to think about all these things changing all at once 
in order to be able to model uh, the, the kind of the next uh, disease emergence. So that sounds quite complicated. Uh, but we started off with um, Lassa fever to, to try to understand whether we could predict where the emergence would be next. So Lassa fever is the probably one of the most serious infectious diseases you've never heard of. So it's like um, Ebola. It's a hemorrhagic fever. It's It's got a lower case fatality rate than, than Ebola has, but it is very, very serious, causing up to around 100,000 to 300,000 cases per year, uh, mainly in, in, completely in West Africa, but mainly in, in uh, Nigeria and Sierra Leone, Liberia. So here it's got its own book. So if you're interested, you can have a look at that. But um, the populations, these are black dots are population, are uh, cases of, of Lassa fever that we know about uh, with a kind of update here at the bottom just to show you, um, you know, it's been, kind of increasing over, over the last uh, decade or so. So um, the first kind of thing to think about when we were trying to model lesser fever in, in our kind of predictive framework was that um, we looked at the host and it's really weird, like the uh, host is a multi-mamate rat, she's called a Mastermus teliensis, it's very cute, but it's, also, it's found throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, apart from parts of South Africa, um, but all the cases of Lassa fever are in West Africa. So the very beginning of this, we were really puzzled by why Lassa fever was only in West Africa. So that was the first part of that. And the first part of that kind of systems dynamic framework was to understand <laughs> where the host was and where the pathogens in, in that host were going to be. So what we, what we did was um, did a phylogenetic analysis of all of the samples that we could get for Lassa fever in these rats, these cute rats. So they, um, uh, we did some sampling across Africa, but also used stuff from GenBank. And we found out that the, this Mastermus intelliensis probably isn't one species, it's probably at least three. And it's this kind of um, subpopulation of, of these rats which is found in West Africa, and those are the ones which host these diseases. So um, we, we think that Lassa fever split off from its most closely related virus relative um, within that clade of, of organisms. So it's evolved in that kind of group of, um, of, of rats. And so it's kind of a, a, a kind of special adaptation that's happened in those species. So that's a really helpful first start to understand why Lassa fever is in, in that geographic region. And then we can start thinking about how to model it um, going forward and make a predictive model. So Mastermus is a, an agricultural pest in West Africa and um, it is really common in um, you know, cropland. And then uh, it's, the Lassa fever is passed on to people through contaminated food, through feces and urine, and also some some communities do hunt hunt them for food, so it's it's passed during direct contact between um, animals and people. Um, there's very little evidence of human to human transmission of Lassa fever, so it's just a, it's a kind of stuttering chain zoonotic, and most zoonotic diseases are like that that you can only infect humans and then it can't infect human to human. A tiny tiny proportion of zoonotic diseases go human to human like COVID and Ebola. So we were trying to understand this direct uh, animal to human 
contact. So uh, a really typical way of doing this is to look at can we understand where the, um, where the cases are geographically and how they're related to the environment. And, and one way to do that is to kind of use the observations that we've got in the field about where the cases are and then and then link that correlatively to the kind of environment. You can get these environmental layers from satellite data and you can match them up using machine learning to understand and predict. Given where we know the cases have been um, and we know what kind of situation they had in terms of the climate and the environment, can we then predict where those, those environmental conditions are the same are our kind of understanding of where we think lasser cases would be. So this is a very correlative approach, but this is a very common approach in ecology. And, you know, we thought about using this kind of approach to understand where the cases were, uh, where the hosts are, and whether we can, we can uh, match this ecological niches to uh, lasser fever. And then we can understand if the environment changes, where lasser fever would be. So it's a kind of predictive framework using our observations in the field and matching that to the environment. So this is what we did. Um, so we, we looked at building a model of all the Alaska cases that we, we knew about, so all these black dots, and then did a, a correlative model to understand, well, what was the environment? Where was the host? Was the host, is that a suitable environment for the host? How many people were there? What was the agriculture? What was the temperature and the rainfall? And so we have a kind of predictive model here and I've shown it in in in, um, in uh, kind of pale pinky to green. So the the darker the green, the more um, likely it is to get a lasso spillover in those those regions. So you could use this kind of predictive map mapping technique to understand uh, where the most likely spots were for lasso fever spillover. So the problem with this is that it's a real correlative approach to understanding the mechanism, the really complex systems dynamic approaches that I was talking about earlier. And it's a kind of um, a very simplistic model in understanding what's going on. And um, we really weren't happy with this. And um, one of the reasons was that um, there's a hospital here <laughs> in Sierra Leone that was set up to study LASA. And there are a couple of hospitals in Nigeria here and here, which kind of correlate where, to where the most of the cases are. So um, this is a kind of biased data set of where we've looked. So where we've looked for LASA cases, uh, clearly, you know, if you've got a hospital facility, you'll get reported into the hospital. And so what we wanted to do instead was, was take the best kind of bits of this approach, but try to put some mechanisms in so we can do a kind of mashup model of a large scale, but using epide an epidemiological framework in which to model and understand this disease. Okay, so we did a completely bottom-up approach here. So before it was kind of correlative, and now it's kind of understanding um, this at a, at a much finer scale. So, so what I did was, was cut up all of West Africa up into one kilometer grid squares, and we had a, a model in each one of those grid squares, which kind of um, tried to describe uh, where the, uh, what the humans were doing in those squares. So you have a susceptible population, which is in here, just this box of humans in tiny squares all over this region. And then you've got infectious, infected people. 
And then you've got a kind of force of infection here from susceptible to infectious. So that's kind of parameterized by um, you know, the likelihood, how many people were in that region, in that kilometer grid square, what the habitat was and its suitability to the host, and some kind of contact rate between animals and people, which is, is just in here. So don't worry about the details, but what we did was we parameterized it with real data from how many people were living in here, what their occupations were, were they farmers? And then we, we modeled like how, whether the suitable landscape for the host was to understand how many, um, how many, uh, what the suitability of the landscape for, for that host was and, and, that, and the contact rate between hosts and people. And so we did it from first principles and then ran it as a stochastic model to get a very different account of where we think uh, Lassa fever is more prevalent. And so you can see it here in West Africa. It's kind of these cases are centered around the hospital because the effort was really high, but actually the uh, risk was, was quite uh, localized in some of these regions and not others. And Nigeria came out with being a really high likelihood of, of emergence. And that's a combination of having a lot of people, but also converting a lot of ecosystems into um, into uh, farmland and having higher populations of these rodents. So we wanted to kind of take this, this model into the real world and do something that was useful, not just model Lassa fever for our own sake. And this is just so coincided with a really massive outbreak of, of Lassa fever in, in Nigeria in 2018. And we worked with some amazing colleagues in Nigeria and at UCL as well. Um, and we talked to the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control in Nigeria, to come up with, um, uh, to look at their data and to, to understand whether we could make a predictive model for, uh, that was useful in terms of uh, managing the outbreak. Um, so we um, started firstly at looking at their data. So they, they've been collecting data over the last uh, 10 years or so but only in the last five years has it been really systematic. Um, so they've set up their CDC in Nigeria and they've been collecting data in a much more rigorous and systematic way across the whole country. So we're getting some really amazing data from, from, from Nigeria for the first time that Lassa fever has been properly looked at. So it's a really good opportunity to start using these data and then making models. So when you, can, when you look at the kind of cases here, so the pink is one to 10, the red is over 50 and green is very few uh, cases. You can see that our model matches better the kind of statistic mechanistic approach that we took from bottom up uh, understanding of how many humans there were, how many animals there are, what the spillover rate was. So that was a much better fit than the, than the statistical model, which is just based on observations. So we kind of use that approach to uh, further parameterize uh, our, our model and including the reporting effort that the CDC were putting in, but also the kind of seasonal cycle um, and all the, all the kind of poverty and socio-ecological correlates that we put in and also rainfall. So uh, one of the exciting thing really is that we were able to look at the data that they've been collecting over the last few years and make our, our kind of comparison from the observed to our predicted. So we've got a really, really good fit to the observed data. And we can out, use an outer sample approach to predict what would happen in 
in future years. And really importantly, because of the, the um, correlation between rainfall and uh, these rats, because they, they, the food, food goes up after the rain so that they're much more abundant, there's a three to four month lag um, between when it rains and when the populations become really abundant. So that gives you a three month warning to the CDC that there's going to be a massive um, outbreak of, of Lassa fever. So this year in 2020 has been the largest outbreak of Lassa fever that we've ever known. And that's because of the kind of climatic effects being warmer and wetter and, and having bumper crops, but also bumper populations of, 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 of rats. So this is a really uh, interesting way to kind of use our approach, a mechanistic approach to develop something useful that people can um, use as a policy tool and understand where to make interventions. Okay, just so I just want to end then with um, another disease which you will have heard of. So another hemorrhagic fever. And um, this is, is an incredibly interesting disease. And it doesn't just go from uh, animals to people, but it also goes uh, people to people. And um, it caused mass devastation in West Africa in 2014 to 16. And of course, there's still an outbreak going on in uh, DRC in Central Africa now. So this is an incredibly interesting disease. I don't mean to sound macabre, but it is an absolute fascinating disease. So we tried to take the same approach, but don't forget that this also goes human to human. So we had to do a different kind of model. So this bit here is, is where you've got the exposed susceptible humans, exposed humans, and then infectious. But then you've got human-to-human -human transmission. So you've got exposed, exposing susceptible people. <laughs> so you've got uh, humans in the model uh, acting on other humans, like the same with COVID. So you've got the animal part up here, susceptible to infectious, but you've also got the human part too. And also, incredibly interesting, that Ebola... Um, the infectivity of Ebola means that you're infectious to other humans two days after you're dead, up to two days after you're dead. So we have a kind of funeral compartment here as well, which is just horrifying, but really interesting. So then these, this R thing is when you, you die or you, you, you recover from Ebola. So you, you can act, have this model acting in each one kilometre grid square across Africa. And then you can start parameterizing it with these um, environmental data understanding where the hosts are, understanding where the humans are, and then you can move humans from um, compartments to compartments across this landscape using real um, transport networks. So you can get infectious and expose people moving from compartment to, uh, from grid to grid across this landscape. So it kind of gives you uh, the best of both worlds in terms of you can get a really fine scale compartment model which epidemiologists use all the time, they're using now for COVID, but you can do it across these mass areas, including the environmental variables and understanding how uh, human transportation networks influence these um, outbreaks. So one of the cool things that you can do it for present day conditions, but then you can, you can think about well, what's going to happen in the future under different scenarios of global change, of climate change and land use change, and change the probabilities uh, and rerun this model. So it's like a toy model, but you can use it to think about interventions and what different global scenarios will do to Ebola and start predicting it. 
So it's a really exciting approach. So we use this approach from the bottom up. So there's only been about 26 outbreaks of Ebola. So you can't really use it in, a, in that kind of correlative model approach we did for the first for the first part of the analysis philosophy. You can't do that at all because there's not enough it, it spillovers. There's loads of cases, but the spillovers are the things that really matter. So we did it from first principles again as the second part of the last paper that the latter analysis that I showed you. So here you've just got um, risk of spillover from blue to yellow, and we've I've just put on the spillovers of of Ebola onto this map so you can see what the correlation is. So it's successfully picking up this outbreak in West Africa, but also picking up the, the kind of outbreaks in DRC. So this one is kind of cases and, out, and spillovers. And this one is just the spillovers that's up here on the top right. And then this one here is really interesting in terms of it's the spillovers that cause a really big outbreak. So this is over 1,500 people, 1,500 cases of Ebola. So this is a stochastic model that we ran on the UCL computers and kind of broke them. Um, so we, we have, this is a 20,000 runs of this model. And then you've, I've just summed the output onto these maps. So what, one of the really interesting things is that we did this um, analysis in, in early 2018. And um, we came up with these regions of really high risk. So if a spillover happens, then it's going to be really bad in terms of the connectivity of the humans and the kind of security and vulnerability of those populations. And we predicted these regions here to be areas of incredibly high risk. And then later, a few months later, the outbreaks in DRC happened. So that, that was a, a really interesting kind of and pretty horrifying outcome of our, our modeling process. But I think there's a lot of... Um, a lot of utility in using our, our knowledge of how ecosystems change or are changing by climate change or land use change to change these pathways between animals and people from first principles and then putting that and modeling that into a kind of spatial framework to make predictions of what's going to happen. And I think that's a really interesting way of managing these kind of very, very um, stochastic and unpredictable well, supposedly unpredictable uh, spillovers okay, sorry so then you know you can change um the model and in, or uh, in into lots of different scenarios so in here we've got different um concentration pathway scenarios for climate change but also we've thought about how socioeconomics might change in the future and there are different kind of pathways for that as well they're called ssps um so you can kind of combine these up to to understand what the likely scenarios of Ebola emergence would be in the future under different travel regimes and different human population growth and a different climate change um, you know and, and temperature and, and rainfall regimes uh, and also other things too like vaccination for example if we had a, a vaccine for Ebola where would you apply it and then how would that change the the model so I don't want you to take these too seriously but we 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 projected under these different RCPs and SSPs, uh, different climate change scenarios and global change scenarios, what Ebola would do. So we, we were kind of coming up with, with evidence to say that, you know, we, we would expect more of these outbreaks to happen. And 
when they do happen, they're more likely to be catastrophic, as in we, ha we have more than 1,500 cases uh, under the different scenarios. And then, you know, for the future then, I'd really like to try and uh, use this approach to model vectors as well. And we've been thinking about malaria under these kinds of scenarios and future, future uh, large-scale modelling as well. So we've been thinking about how to do that um, over the last few years. Uh, so just to conclude then, um, you know, reservoir hosts yeah, and these hosts of, of, of disease do... Do, you do need to think about how they respond to, to global change in order to model and understand how the pathways change between animals and people. But we really don't really understand how that happened. We don't, we don't know enough about how ecosystems and, and populations of animals in those ecosystems respond to, to changing landscape degradation. So we, don't, we need to understand that a lot better to be able to predict what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, as I've shown, you really do need to think about all these things in combination in this kind of systems dynamic approach in order to really get to a predictive framework that's actually useful. And I think, you know, we've had really a load of fun trying to figure out how to combine different modelling approaches and different thinking of, of how to approach this. So the epidemiological one of compartmental models are very local. And my kind of macroevolutionary correlative models are very broad and, and you know, very, um, <laughs> very correlative and not mechanistic. But combining them both in this kind of modeling mashup has been really cool uh, to try to get at the problem. Um, and then, you know, just finally, uh, we need to stop just thinking about human health as a human problem. It's, it's to do with our intersection of the environment. We need to take care of our environment and make sure we understand you know, what the consequences are of changing landscapes and changing the climate has on us and, and our planet. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ada, for such a fantastic presentation. You've given us a lot to think about. Uh, we have got uh, perhaps a few minutes left to, to address uh, some of the questions uh, which have been posted. Uh, so the first one, how can this knowledge inform our decision-making, such as development in cities or wider economic decisions? What is your view on this? Um, I think um, I've just done a couple of diseases there, and I think really we need to understand uh, the impacts of our actions across different diseases. So we need to kind of scale up this work to think about more zoonotic diseases and understand what the trade-offs are, because it could be that, you know, you have a, a landscape in, in Nigeria and very poor people in the north, for example, and you want to uh, develop that into agriculture. So that, that would create a huge amount of food security and, and um, you know, decreased poverty in that region. That's a great thing. But if it also means that you have an increased outbreak of Lassa fever, which ultimately is, um, you know, impacts that local and national at the national levels. And that's terrible. So we need to really understand what those trade-offs really mean uh, mm. when we're for future development. And I think we need to have a more holistic approach across different diseases to, to understand that. But also the other ecosystem services as well, like you know, flood prevention, water quality, air quality. So, 
you know, I think it's a very complex system that we don't we don't think about enough. That's excellent. And this links to the next question. So you've showed us a complex model, which, as you just said, um, basically shows the various interlinks. So can the model be generalized for predicting the spread of a pandemic in future? And if so, <laughs> do you think are the yeah. parameters that, uh, you know, basically would enable that generalization? Um, well, the, the compartmental approach, it doesn't matter what disease it is, you just put in uh, how a disease changes between compartments. So for Ebola, it's, it's actually not that infectious. Mm -hmm. So the, the kind of R0 isn't very high, it's like three. But for, say, COVID, it's much higher than that. And, and things like chickenpox are crazy, crazily infectious. So I think that you can change the parameters quite easily as long as you know them. And then all the other things are the same because, um, you know, the human population uh, is the same. You just have to think about what the host is and how the contact rate between host and human is changing. So I think it's a very generalizable framework to think about, say, COVID in the future. But we need to understand a lot more about the host and how the uh, contact rates have been changing between humans and the COVID hosts. Clearly, the problems that you have been covering are very close to us, and there is an awful lot of data that is needed so to make the model viable in its prediction. How can community help to provide you with the data needed for this type of research? Gosh, that's a, that's a good question. I think a lot of the data is already there in terms of this, the, from the satellite data. Um, for the, the kind of animal data is also uh, there to some extent that we know what species are, are where. What we don't quite understand is what pathogens have, where the pathogens are and, um, you know, which animals have which pathogens and then which pathogens are really able to, to get into us. There's only a very few that can even get into us. And there's a tiny, tiny, tiny number. And I bet you, you know all their names like Ebola, SARS. <laughs> You know, all their names, right? They're a tiny, tiny fraction of these zoonotic diseases. But I guess like strengthening health systems is one of the ways that we can really help to stop pandemics. Because, you know, if you had a, a, a strong health system that can stop these before they start um, and better connected, connectedness of healthcare interventions and public health interventions, uh, we could have we would have been able to stop this this pandemic and hopefully others. And so another couple of questions and to finish this uh, fantastic session. Um, how long do you, do you think it will take um, until we can actually forecast uh, outbreaks uh, like for Lassa, for example? Um, I think Lassa, we can probably do it now. Um, I think, I mean, our paper's still in review, so <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so we can do things like that. But LASA, for example, is a really simple system. So it's, it's got the rat, it's got the human, and that's it. You know, like Ebola is much more complicated um, because of the human-to-human human -human transmission. And COVID, we don't even know what that transmission is yet. So that's, that's quite complicated. So I think it depends on the disease, really. But um, I think you could do something quite quickly in terms of, you know, we know somewhat what the risky animals are. We know how land use changes some of those pathways. So I think we could give it a good stab now about where we should be strengthening health systems for the future. 
to understand these catastrophic spillovers. So I'm really hopeful that we can actually get together as a community and, and think about modelling this in a much more joined up way that includes not just about the hazard, which is the ecological hazard, but also the exposure, so people's actions, but then also the susceptibility, um, how much healthcare provision, how much governance is in that region if something happens, or does climate change impact the vulnerability of populations? And then that equals risk. So you have hazard exposure and susceptibility equaling risk. And, and I think a much more nuanced understanding of that will really help us. Mm -hmm. And one final question, which I, I actually posted the Kate, so I was going to replace it slightly. You've showed us that in the link between uh, the human health and, and, and the health of the environment, uh, clearly there are, um, um, the, the, link, the links are at many different levels. Uh, and the impact on the ecosystems are at different levels. So where do we actually start to, to stop a pandemic such as COVID-19? We know that we cause climate change with, with, with many of our actions and the services that enable us. Which, which service do we tackle first to basically stop you know, the, the, or break the interlinks so that we don't affect the nature um, in the way we have been doing Gosh, that's a really good question. As in, I don't know the answer. I think what you're asking is like in your model, a model of COVID, if you could model COVID, uh, which would be the biggest drivers of, of that pandemic? And, that, and as I said, you've got hazard, susceptibility, uh, exposure and susceptibility and all those things interplay with one another to cause this pandemic. So I would say that hazard is quite high, right? So we need yeah. to understand where the hazard is. And, into it, you know, that there's some suggestion that it was a live animal market in Wuhan in China. So, you know, thinking about controlling those markets might be a way to decrease the hazard. So not just banning them, because that's a really easy political thing to do, but a political statement to make anyway. I don't think it's politically <laughs> easy to do. But you could increase biosecurity, for example, on those live animal markets and stop trading animals. So it could be that hazard is something that we need to, to reduce. There's the exposure, you know, like people, people going into um, pristine areas to hunt. We need to think about the exposure and how that changes, like how many humans there are in, in a place, like thinking about how to reduce human population numbers in the future. And then susceptibility could also be, you know, increase. So increasing health, sorry, decrease. So you could inc increase, um, you know, uh, public health measures and strengthening healthcare to reduce all those things. So it's impossible to know which one is more important. But I would say reducing the hazard would be an easy thing uh, to start. So stop exploiting <laughs> um, Stop exploiting wild places and wild animals and start conserving them. Thank you, Kate. It's been really fantastic uh, to hear your presentation and good luck this afternoon with the Environment <laughs> Audit Committee. So this is the lecture for today. The next one is on May the 28th. And please check UCL's Minds website for more information. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.